Lord, may your word do its work uh, in our hearts this day, accomplishing your purposes for our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1933, during the dark days of the Depression, President Franklin D. Roosevelt said in the radio speech, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And I don't know, it seems to me that there's a lot to fear besides fear. I'm afraid of heights. I'm afraid of needles. I'm afraid of the sight of blood. My wife's afraid of spiders. Most people are afraid of public speaking. Some are afraid of snakes. Others are afraid of the dark or the dentists or roller coasters or thunderstorms. I mean, can you imagine a life without fear? Louis Pasteur, well known for his discoveries of the principles of vaccination and pasteurization, is reported to have had such an irrational fear of dirt and infection, he refused to shake hands. President and Mrs. Benjamin Harrison were so intimidated by the newfangled electricity installed in the White House, they didn't dare touch the switches. There were no servants around to turn off the lights when the Harrisons went to bed They slept with them on. It said that the Soviet dictator, Joseph Stalin, so feared for his safety that his residence in Moscow contained eight bedrooms, and each night Stalin chose a bedroom at random to ensure that no one knew exactly where he was sleeping. There seems to be a lot to fear besides fear itself. Layoffs at work, flare-ups in the Middle East, some demented dictator collecting nuclear warheads, terrorist attacks. We fear we might get sued. We fear finishing last. Too much bills left after the money is gone. We fear that the lump we discovered. We fear change. We fear getting older. Oh, will my teenager make it home safely tonight? Uh, will my parents get a divorce? It's been said ordinary children today are more fearful than psychiatric patients were in the 1950s. There are hidden fears that motivate us too. Fear of failure causes many people to never start or try anything that is not completely safe. Fear of rejection makes us afraid to do anything that could draw criticism or give someone a chance to laugh at us. And there's the overall fear of people and what they think of us that often controls our decisions making, our decision making and affects and controls our lives. There seems to be a lot to fear besides fear itself. The fears are too numerous to mention. There are over 530 documented phobias. I've shared some of these with you before in a previous sermon, so I'm not going to go there again. But there's some fear that is good. When cornered in a dark alley, it is fear that activates a fight-or-flight mode. Fear may keep us from driving 100 miles per hour or or attempting other foolish, dangerous things. Yet most of what we fear is of the kind that paralyzes us, eats away at our peace, and robs us of joy. Max Lucado says this about fear. Fear is unwilling to share the heart with happiness. Happiness complies and leaves. Do you ever see the two together? Can one be happy and afraid at the same time? Fear is the big bully in the high school hallway. For all the noise fear makes and room it takes, fear does little good. And we know that fear does little good, yet we all struggle with it. 
Is this the reason that the phrase fear not occurs so frequently in the Bible? And I know that Joyce Myers and others teach that the phrase fear not or its synonym appears 365 times in the Bible to create a one for every day of the year lesson. I mean, it sounds good. It preaches, but it's not exactly true. I mean, it does show up a lot, though, close to 100 times. Yet if it was spoken even once by our Lord, that should be enough. And it is spoken once to the disciples in this scene that was read to us earlier from Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. I'd like you to turn there in your Bibles, if you're not there, to Matthew 14, Matthew 14, verses 22 through 33. And, and we have been working our way through a sampling of God's promises. Our God is not only a promise maker, but a promise keeper. And it is our knowledge of God's great and precious promises that equips us to overcome temptation to sin and incite us to daring acts of righteousness. We must be armed with God's promises. Dangle the carrot of God's promises before our eyes daily. Take these promises with us each day. And the true story of the disciples battling a storm on the Sea of Galilee provides us with another promise. The bottom line truth from this true account in Matthew 14 is that we need not fear any storm because our Lord is a God who protects his own. We need not fear any storm because our Lord is a God who protects his own. And we have his promised presence in the midst of the storm as we see in this section of Scripture for today. Now notice the opening words of this scene, Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately, we'll see this word a few times in this story. Immediately, verse 22, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Now, did you catch that? Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. Made. The word made is a very strong verb, meaning compelled. Jesus didn't suggest they get into the boat. He commanded them to get into the boat. Now, what is this all about? Well, I need to place this in its context. The popularity of Jesus had reached an all-time high following the miraculous feeding of 5,000 or more, like probably more like 10,000 people or more when you include women and children. And if Jesus was about building a physical empire on earth, then this was the time to do it. The fever pitch and excitement was on the rise as the multitude saw the power of one individual. Not only did they observe this man Jesus heal the sick and cast out of demons, but now they were eyewitnesses to Jesus' creating food with his bare hands. They tasted it. The people with their stomachs full were ready to make him king. For many in that day... Life consisted of trying to get enough for your next meal. If they could get free food, then, then, then that's the kind of king they wanted. Disciples must have felt this was the time to capitalize on his popularity. And what does Jesus do at this critical juncture and, and pinnacle of his fame? He makes the disciples get in the boat and go on ahead of him while he dismissed the crowd. And it makes no sense. Jesus commands them to get into the boat and go ahead of him, and they did it. This is not incidental to what comes next. For verse 24 says, But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, likely around three miles out into the middle. 
It was buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. What contrary winds seem to be blowing in your life right now? Here are these guys out in the middle of the lake in the midst of a terrible storm that Jesus sent them into. Why? Did Jesus miscalculate the severity of the storm? Did he not know this storm was coming? Why send them into a storm? Charlie Brown builds a a beautiful sandcastle. He works on it for hours. And finally, he's done, so he stands back and he looks at it. It's wonderful. Just as he's, he's seeing how wonderful it is, he's admiring it. A storm comes up and blows over his entire, blows over his entire sandcastle. Now he's standing where his beautiful masterpiece was on level sand, saying to himself, I know there's a lesson in this, but I'm not sure what it is. Every one of us has our sandcastles blown away, and we... Scratch our heads wondering. I know there's a lesson in this, but not sure what it is. So Jesus sends them off into a storm. It would be the perfect storm. In October 1991, a convergence of weather conditions combined to form a perfect storm in the North Atlantic. Hurricane Grace met a low-pressure system from the Great Lakes fed by a cold-high pressure system coming down from Canada. In the real storm, winds blasted the ocean to make waves peaking at 100 feet. Caught in the storm was the sword fishing boat, uh, Andrea uh, Gale. The book and movie, The Perfect Storm, tell the story of the ship's brave and hardworking crew from Gloucester, Mass. Six fishermen who eventually die at sea when the storm's massive waves capsize their boats. Looking at those waves, it's no wonder that the Andrea Gale went down, all 72 feet of her, and her crew of six. Because when the sea's against you, there's not much you can do. How does that saying go? Oh, Lord, the sea is so great, and my boat is so small. This was a fact not lost, and the disciples huddled into that small fishing boat headed for Bethsaida the night the wind grew strong. There they were trying to best that perfect storm, rowing as hard as they could on those oars, heaving and and breathless, pulling and straining to keep their heads above water, fighting the elements and perhaps wondering, Jesus, why did you send us out in these conditions? And where are you now that we need you? You know, you don't have to be a sailor to be in a storm. Haven't we all cried out to God for help like that at some time in our life? And you strain against the oars, and the water seems to be rising. You cry out in fear and despair. Jesus, where are you now that I need you? Whether it be in the storms of our personal lives and trials, or in the struggle for justice for all of God's people, we sometimes find ourselves straining at the oars, fearful that we're going under, crying out for that one who alone can calm the seas and command the waves. Oh, Jesus knew the storm was coming. The one who had authority over these disciples had authority over the weather, as we will see at the end of all of this. Jesus was aware they would be battling a storm. It would be the perfect storm to teach some lessons. What are the lessons? Well, lesson number one. Lesson number one. When storms hit, a lesson to remember is that even though we may not be able to see Jesus, he sees us. When storms hit, a lesson to remember is that even though we may not be able to see Jesus, He sees us. 
In Mark's account of this incident, he says in, in Mark 6, 48 of Jesus, he saw, he saw the disciples straining at the oars. He saw. He sees. And from their perspective, the storm is vicious, the water is raging, raging, and worst of all, no Jesus. At least the last time they faced such a storm, Jesus was in the boat with them. All they had to do was, was wake him up, and he stilled the storm. This time, no Jesus, and they had the only boat, as we're told elsewhere. So it's not likely he's going to show up anytime soon. To make matters worse, they were simply doing what they were told to do. I mean, it's one thing to be in the storm because of our own wrong choices, but it's another matter completely to find yourself in a storm when you're only trying to do the right thing. They are trying to do what Jesus told them to do, but they're not having much success. Obedience brought contrary winds. And this flies in the face, folks, of prosperity theology. They're right in the middle of God's will, in the middle of the lake, in the middle of a storm. They were in a storm because they were doing the will of Christ. As an aside, be real slow and careful to judge someone who's in the storm as though it was the result of their wrongdoing. We draw conclusions and worse, speak those to others as to our take on why so-and-so is going through some trial. The disciples were ordered into the boat. They obeyed and then found themselves in the perfect storm. Mark this down. It is better to be in the storm in God's will than anywhere else out of God's will. So these guys are being battered, tormented, fearing their lives, staying with it for five to six hours, trying to go four miles or so, and they can't do it. Little do they know, they are secure. For Jesus sees, Jesus is watching. A group of children was lined up for lunch in the cafeteria of a church, a church primary school. At the head of the table was a bowl of juicy apples. The supervising nun wrote a note and placed it next to the apples. Take only one. God is watching. The other end of the table was a large pile of chocolate chip cookies. A child had written a note and put it next to the plate. Take as many as you want. God's watching the apples. <laughs> now, while you may think that our Lord has bigger matters, matters to attend than the storm you're in, think again. After all, God watching you and at the same time watching all else that's going on is no problem for God. When storms hit, remember that even though we may not be able to see Jesus, he sees us. That's lesson number one. A second lesson is found in the words of, uh, words of verse 23. After he... Jesus dismissed them, the crowd. He went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Lesson number two, when storms hit, remember that Jesus is praying for you. Lesson number two, when storms hit, remember that Jesus is praying for you. Where was he when they encountered the storm? While they were trying to hang on for dear life, what was Jesus doing? He was praying. And unless I miss my guess, one of the items on his prayer list was these disciples. We see Jesus in what might rightfully be called the Lord's Prayer in John 17. What was he doing there? Praying for his disciples. He prays for their protection. He prays for their joy. He prays for their sanctification. In Luke 22, Jesus tells Peter that he's prayed for him that his faith may not fail. 
we're told that Jesus always intercedes for us. Jesus is someone you want on your prayer team. He's praying for us. Our resurrected Lord is praying for us on the storm-tossed seas of life. How comforting is that? Jesus knows right where you are at all times. He sees. And he's praying for you. He prays. I need to get to lesson three. When storms hit, remember that Jesus will meet us there. When storms hit, remember that Jesus will meet us there. Lesson number three. He sees, he prays, and he comes to us. Verse 25 tells us what happens next. Uh, It took place during the fourth watch of the night, which would be between 3 and 6 a.m. And so the time frame is that they got into the boat and headed out between 6 and 9 p.m., and they had been at this all night. They had to be spent, afraid, anxious, and frustrated. I mean, this is a long time. But Jesus is never late, not even a minute late. And the end of verse 25 says, Jesus went out to them walking on the sea. Don't you love that? Not a lot of splash here, pun intended. Not a lot of fanfare and hoopla. It's simply stated in a matter-of-fact way, Jesus went out to them walking on the sea. The one who made the sea can walk on the sea anytime he chooses. He knew exactly where they were. They were never out of his sight. It's in the storm that we come to the end of our rope, realizing that if Jesus doesn't show up, we're doomed. And Jesus does show up and wants to come to where you are, the exact boat you're in, and minister to you right there. He doesn't roam the sea trying to find you. Now, Jesus could have come the storm from where he was on the mountainside, along the shore, but he came to them in their need so that another lesson could be learned. He comes to them and personally ministers to them. And verse 26 says that when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, lake they were terrified. That's an understatement. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. Whoa, the disciples believe in ghosts? Not until now. Whatever fears they already were dealing with, it now reaches another level. Some in the boat might have felt like jumping overboard at this point. Their fears are running away from them now. They never expected to see Jesus, so the only thing they can think of is that this is some ghost, some phantom, some water spirit. And I wonder, how often do we miss seeing the fingerprints of God because we never expected him to show up? How often do we miss seeing the fingerprints of God because we never expected him to show up? Would we recognize the presence of Jesus when it's staring us in the face? Now in the midst of their crying out, it is a ghost. The Lord Jesus heard their cry and immediately, there's that word again, immediately said to them, verse 27, be of good cheer. That's not much help. Oh, but it is when it's offered by the lips of Jesus. He says to them, be of good cheer or take courage or, or take heart. Why? Because of his next three words, it is I. Now, this would have meant a great deal to them, and it should us. Then he says, do not be afraid. Take courage, do not be afraid, or sandwiched around those three words, it is I. The meat of these words is the very presence of Jesus. No need to fear because Jesus is near. It is I. It is I. It's a loaded statement. The Old Testament, the equivalent of the it is I is the Hebrew expression, I am he. And over and over again in the book of Isaiah and other places, God says, I am he. And Jesus is identifying himself as Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the self-existent God, the one who said, I am who I am. 
So the Lord Jesus comes across the water, walking on the water, and shouts out to them, Take courage, it is I, I am he. He was proclaiming to them the fact that he is the God who brought Israel out of the land of Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea, and ultimately into the Promised Land. I mean, these are potent words. Jesus calmed their fears by speaking to them. Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. He sees, he prays, and he comes to us. We need not fear any storm because our Lord is a God who protects his own. There's one very last very important lesson. Lesson number four. When the storms hit, remember it is there that Jesus deepens our faith. When the storms hit, remember it is there that Jesus deepens our faith. Verse 28. Let me read verse 28. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you in the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. Now, you may see this as loud mouth, brash Peter, being presumptuous, overconfident, and once again speaking before he thinks. Now, I don't necessarily see it that way. You may think of this as Peter showing off and trying to one-up the rest of the disciples. Maybe, but I don't think so. I mean, no doubt there's an element of, of impetuosity in, in his character, and he, he battled pride like we all do. But he wasn't stupid, and since he was a fisherman by trade, he had spent many hours in the water and in storms. Showing off by getting out of the boat was not the driver here. He had never walked on water before, and not sure he presumed that this would be the time to start. I think what motivated Peter, I think what motivated Peter here was his desire to be with Jesus. Peter wanted to be where Jesus was. He longed to be with Jesus so that he was willing to climb out of the boat and head in his direction. He tried to get as close to Jesus as he could, so he got out of the boat. When he climbed out of the boat, he was not thinking about the conditions around him as much as being near his Lord. Is that your greatest desire? Would your longing to be with Jesus move you enough to get you out of the boat? Is your longing to be where Jesus is strong enough to motivate you to climb out of the comforts of your boat, whatever that is? And after Jesus invites Peter to come, Peter gets out of the boat. He walks on the water toward Jesus. And at some point, it must have dawned on him what he was doing. This is a little tougher than he first thought. Peter had been in many storms in a boat, but never in a storm out of the boat. And interestingly, Peter's faith was strong enough to get him out of the boat, but not strong enough to stand up to the storm. And fear got the best of Peter, and he began to sink. And, and look what Peter says at the end of verse 30. Follow along as I read verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, to put it mildly. And beginning to sink, he cried out. Now, what does he pray as he begins to sink? Well, the end of verse 30 says, follow along. What does he pray here? He's beginning to sink. Oh, thou great and powerful God that dwellest between the cherubims, the great eternal Trinitarian God, thou who has redeemed us, you are holy and righteous in all your ways. No, that isn't how he prayed at this moment. Actually, if he prayed that long, his words would have been garbled because you had been sinking in the water all the time. But as he began to sink, it is simply, Lord, save me. At times like this, the best prayer we can speak as has been said, he that cannot pray, let him go to sea, and there he will learn. <laughs> Reminds me of another storm that was raging. The ship was taking in a lot of water. Realizing that his ship was sinking, the captain suddenly called out, does anyone here know how to pray? 
And a man stepped forward and said, yes, Captain, I know how to pray. Good, said the captain. You pray while the rest of us put on life jackets. We're one short. (laughs) Sometimes all we can do is pray and pray, Lord, save me. It's in the storm where our faith deepens. If you're sinking, Lord, save me. If you're overwhelmed with fear, Lord, save me. If you're in over your head, Lord, save me. When temptation is squeezing you in all sides, Lord, save me. Some of you may be in such a state in your life right now that this is all you need to say to the Lord. You don't need to come to the Lord with many words, all theologically accurate, getting it all to sound just right. You may need to add three words to your list of prayers. Lord, save me. And how does Jesus respond to that kind of heartfelt prayer? Verse 31 is instructive. It says, immediately, immediately, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. And he says to Peter, you have little faith, why did you doubt? Now let me suggest to you that little faith is better than no faith. The Lord can work with our little faith, even faith mixed with doubts. The lesson here is that Jesus wanted to build on Peter's little faith. The storm was perfect to teach all of them some lessons for life. And how does this amazing true story end? What's the climax of the story? It's not the stilling of the storm, as marvelous as that was. It's found the words of verse 33. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. The story builds and builds and builds to this point. It is the crescendo. It is not a parenthesis to what has taken place. It is the culmination. They worshipped him. If a storm you're in or just came through doesn't lead to a greater understanding of who Jesus is and to worship him, then you've come up short. The highest function of the redeemed soul is to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Why praise him in the storm? We know he sees, he prays. He comes to us. He's growing us deeper. The storm's a perfect place to get our attention, teach us some lessons, and deepen our faith. It is there that we find his very presence. It is there that he invites us to come. What will you do? I'm afraid we have so often missed the point of this passage. It isn't get out of the boat and take risks for God, and he will do amazing things in your life. It isn't even keep your eyes on Jesus so you can walk on water. I mean, that stuff preaches, but it isn't the main point. We are to turn our eyes upon Jesus, no, not so that we can walk on water, but to be with him. That is what we sang earlier, just to be with you, just to be with you. All I want is just to be with you. It is to love your presence, Lord Jesus. The point is, desire to be with Jesus, long to be closer to him, and want more than anything else to be where Jesus is. I invite you to come. You step in that direction. When you're walking toward him, he'll pick you up when you fall. When you begin to sink, loved ones, do you long to be with him? Do you long to be where Jesus is? To what degree is the cry of your heart and mine? All I want is just to be with Jesus. Just to be with Jesus. The whole theme of this true account is the presence of Jesus. We need not fear any storm because our Lord is a God who protects his own. That, my friends, is the point. Any storm can be the perfect storm for it can lead us to want him more. No need to fear. No need to fear because Jesus is near. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Touch our hearts with it. Matthew 14, this this true account, speak to our hearts. May, may, may May it stir us to long for you, to desire you, to want to be where Jesus is. Grow us toward that direction, I pray. And Jesus...
precious, wonderful name. Amen.